Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 4, or as Donald Trump would say, Colossians chapter 4. We are concluding our series, The Essentials for Maximum Influence from Colossians, and the backdrop is false teachers who not only were in error in their content, but also in how they were operating in their relationships. Their style of relating was manipulative, creating social pressure to kind of keep people, you know, within their little group. And unfortunately, I would say that probably any of us who have had experience within uh, Christian cultures, we've also had experience with unhealthy styles of relating under that, that big tent of Christianity. It's my observation that those who want to taste genuine Christian fellowship, those who would like more of a stripped-down, authentic version of Christianity without the dog and pony show, have been soured on past experiences with faith communities. Now, I had an experience this past week that kind of typified some of this, and I think kind of shows the well, the spiritual nature of this. I uh, do my morning devotions on my iPad so I can jump back and forth between my, my journal on my iPad and my, the Bible and then um, my Bible software if I'm investigating a, a particular passage. And one morning this week, I was writing down my thoughts, and it was like my mind just started veering off onto different people different offenses, different things that it's like if my attitude started here, I ended up kind of down here, and it was a dark spot, kind of embracing, you know, that, that victimhood. I found myself in a foul mood, which Janet quickly pointed out. Um, but she was very gracious and helped me to see the, the spiritual nature of that uh, and, and the spiritual attack of that. I went to our life group on Wednesday evening and kind of brought it to light. That cloud began to lift. Now, the weird thing about that is I'm not usually prone to kind of morose thoughts. I'm not a person prone to extended times of depression. But this was, uh, this was, uh, this was weird. And if you follow the breadcrumbs, you could see that I think the, the enemy plays a part in trying to get us to, to think about those kinds of things to where... I could see how a person, if they allowed that to just fester, you just kind of throw up your hands and you say, you know, the whole system is just hopeless. Past hurts are replayed so that our our hearts are dragged down into this joyless space and Christ seems distant at best. And, and, And if you remain in a church... You kind of feel like a fake if that's what's going on on the inside because it's almost like you're a secret agent because you got all the, you know, your, your, your heart is feeling this over here, this negativity when you're trafficking in the faith community and there's this dissonance and it's, it's hard to sometimes reconcile. So I did pretty much what you know, any self-righteous Christian would do, I threw away my iPad into the trash and got rid of the problem because that was the real problem, right? No. Although that would be what probably some of the false teachers would have done in Colossians. Instead of dealing with the heart, 
you deal with just external behavior and you think that that is going to fix it. And it never does. I recognized that my thoughts were in air, and as I got into God's word and I began to realize once again God's, God's grace in my own life, I was able to enjoy his presence. But it, it occurred to me that such, such things unchecked can easily lead to us feeling vulnerable, subject to a lot of different reactions. Uh, and I've already alluded to it. I, you could uh, kind of opt for self-righteous legalism, where we think we could control our feelings of inadequacy by simply ramping up our performance. And that's very common within, within Christian circles. Or we could jump from spiritual experience to spiritual experience, to spiritual event to spiritual event, and kind of convince ourselves that that is the authentic Christian experience, even though there's stuff in our hearts that we've never really addressed. That's also common. Or you could just opt out of the whole thing altogether because you're sick of the dissonance. And you wonder how pastors last in the midst of that if that's going on all the time. And many pastors can't find their way out of those dark spots and, you know, end up selling insurance. And the scary thing is, in my opinion, there is no way to have healthy relationships if that's what's going on in our hearts. There's no way. The best you can do is fake it. But if we truly want to have healthy relationships, I think that we have to. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we never have any problems. But I'm just saying that we are are deliberate in addressing our thoughts, addressing our hearts. And that was one of the things that, you know, Janet kind of steered me toward, just asking questions, you know, instead of just condemning, like, you know, snap out of it. You know, it wasn't that at all. It was just like, hey, here's what seems like's going on here. Um, and then once I got out of my fetal position, we were okay. So <laughs> I, I love what Paul does in Colossians, where he's dealing with the internal heart thinking issues and dealing with the external stuff, the behaviors. And that's essentially what this passage represents, because he's talking about the, you know, how, what's going on in our hearts in terms of prayer, and then he's also dealing with uh, kind of a style of relating. And I love that. And I think that's what he's trying to do is contrast. That, that's more of an authentic, holistic approach versus that very narrow, uh, self-righteous approach that those false teachers were, were advocating. So let's stand as we look at Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, may what goes on in our hearts not be condemnation today. As we're challenged from your word, may we be honest in our responses, open to your Holy Spirit changing, transforming us, and deliberate in meditating 
on how this applies to our lives. Change us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Notice the phrase, we are to walk in wisdom. Paul has in mind here in verse 5, more than just speech. To walk implies as we go, as we live, we are to do so in wisdom. This refers to a practical, transformational application of the truth of God. Now, at the beginning of the epistle, Paul prayed for the Colossians to know wisdom. Here, he is asking them to live it, to put it into practice. But notice, it is toward outsiders. We are to operate with wisdom to those outside of the household of faith, those in the general populace that we come in contact with. We are to operate in wisdom as we shop. We are to operate in wisdom as we do business. We are to operate in wisdom at work. We are to operate in wisdom as we get a haircut. Or we are to operate in wisdom. We contrast that with foolishness, the opposite of wisdom. It's thoughtless behavior. It's not caring how we come off to others. That would be foolish. But Paul's saying, no, I don't want you to fly off the handle here. I want you to be wise so that you have maximum impact. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33 amplifies this idea. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So he's talking about outsiders and those inside the church. Give no offense. Just as I try to please everyone, this is strange language to me. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Try to please everyone. I mean, is Paul that insecure where he wants everybody's approval? Is that what he's trying to do? I would suggest not. That's not the point. Rather, he cares that people know that they are valued and that they are respected with every touch that he has with people. I mean, what good is it in terms of our testimony in terms of the gospel if we leave people in our wake who think we are a horse's patoot, right? Write that down, patoot, okay? Very important. A person, in other words, who walks in wisdom is socially aware, all right? They have a sense of how they are coming off. Have you ever caught yourself, for instance, when maybe you're in a conversation, you realize, man, I'm really speaking loud. You might be in a restaurant. It's like, oh, oh, you know, sorry. Keep it down, all right? Or, or you realize yourself, you're getting worked up about something and, you know, you kind of have to tell yourself, all right, let's bring it down a notch. And I think that's what he's kind of after here. And these people are not so self-absorbed, those who walk in wisdom, not so self-absorbed that they're blind to what others think. 
And they certainly don't want to come off saying, man, that guy's a jerk, all right? It's that kind of thing. The wisdom to which Paul talks about here stands in sharp contrast to the false teachers who boasted in chapter 2, verse 23, of having an appearance of wisdom. So you have an appearance of wisdom versus really walking in wisdom. I mean, listen, when it comes to being in a Christian subculture, no matter what church you're a part of, you can get the lingo down, right? You may know how to operate within a specific faith community and pander to what it is that they value. People know how to do that. I mean, you can impress a church by publicly, you know, uh, letting people know the Bible verses you know or Bible knowledge, tales of your ministry exploits. But listen, here's the thing. You might have that appearance of wisdom, but you look under the hood, you look at how people are living in real life in the general public, and it's like, wait a minute, you're saying you have wisdom and you don't pay your bills. What the heck is going on with that? Look at the way you're operating with people in business. What do they think of you? Why is it that you're the kind of person that sits at the lunch table and nobody wants to sit with you? Because you're so prickly. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're judgmental and, and critical. You routinely go off on people in public who don't meet your demands. That's being a fool. That's the opposite of walking in wisdom. We're to be wise in our relations in public so as not to give an unfavorable impression of the gospel. Remember the words of Jesus when he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. We're not to be gullible. We're to know how the world works. But also in dealing with people, do it in a way like a dove. You're, you're respectful and truthful. But even a dove, I mean, you know, a dove is innocent, fluffy little animal, but it also can poop on you, all right? There are people who have a hard edge. They are blustery, opinionated about everything. If you were to take advantage of every opportunity, as this passage says, and you're that kind of person, you know what this would say to you? Apologize for your manner. And don't use the excuse, that's just the way I am. In Christ, you are to die to your demanding flesh and put back in the driver's seat love. All right? Others knowing that they are loved is far more important than you winning the argument or getting your way. That's wisdom. That's how you deal with the public. We either authenticate or impugn the gospel by our lives. Now, some folks are in positions of authority. 
They think they have the right, and I'm talking about Christians, to throw their weight around, especially as they deem others as kind of like their underlings. You know, the power has gone to their head. Some feel superior because of money, and they feel like that maybe others who don't have it, you know, they just didn't work as hard or smart as, as I am. Or, or some may feel superior because of, uh, of their religion or politics, and they treat others who aren't in their camp with great disrespect. Consider those scenarios and consider now some passages where other passages that deal with our relationship with outsiders, and I'm talking about outside the church. Paul writes in Philippians 2 about operating with humility and and putting others before ourselves, and he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Notice this disputing, grumbling, kind of part of that demanding spirit. But it's the children of God who are to walk in a way where others cannot legitimately level that kind of charge against us that we had that demanding spirit. And then he says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, God is not expecting perfection with this stuff, but we are to operate with a view to healthy relationships and being responsible. And I would add, having independent lifestyles as much as we are able. It is the fool who is constantly mooching off of others when he or she doesn't have to. It's the fool who consistently needs mommy or daddy or somebody else to clean up their mess. And what this says here in Thessalonians is that people look at that and they're like, what's up with that? It's a 30-year-old man still living in mom's basement. Get a job. Support yourself. That's what he's saying. Walking in wisdom also means we show respect to authority. Now, again, these are ways that the Scripture mentions that we operate with outsiders. So we are to respect authority. It doesn't mean you have to like authority. It doesn't mean you have to agree with the authority. Consider when these words that I'm about to read in the New Testament, consider when these were written. Nero was in power. Nero was a snake. Nero lived in extravagance, tyranny. He, he doled out capricious executions, including that of his own mother. He was said to have put oil over Christians to stick them in his gardens and to light them afire so it would light his gardens at night. That was Nero. With that as the historical context, I want you to reflect 
on the rhetoric that many Christians use in social media about leaders and then consider this passage. It says this, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor. He even names them the emperor as supreme. Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. In case you didn't get the point, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So if he were writing this today, what might he say? Honor the president, but I don't like him. Honor the president. I don't agree with him. Honor the president. I get it, I don't either. But we're to show honor and respect. We're to do good in the community. You wanna make a difference? You see a problem with the federal government, so do I. See a problem with the governor, the mayor, We've all seen the problems, all right? You got a problem? Get up off your rear end, quit hiding behind the rhetoric, and make a difference in the community you live in. That's what he's saying. Make a difference. Do some good. And on May 7th, we're going to have plenty of opportunity. We can honor everyone, love the brotherhood, unite with other churches, Minister in practical, hand-to-hand ways to those who are less fortunate. This is doing good. This improves the community. When people know they are loved, when we have communicated that we respect who they are, how do you think that's going to impact their receptivity to the gospel? Big time. Next, let your speech also be gracious. Lord, let my speech always be gracious. Say it with me. Lord, let my speech always be gracious. This is about influence. Listen to the influence that Proverbs 22, 11 talks about. He who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, will have the king as his friend. There's a beautiful prose of Moses who sang a song to Israel. Maybe this could go on my tombstone. I'd love it to be. It says this, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain under the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. I love that. Lord, may, may people's contact with me be life-giving. May I be gentle. 
even in the midst of somebody who's irascible, even in the midst when I've got a conflict or maybe I need to fire somebody, I can do it with respect. I can do it with care. I can do it so that that person knows that they are valued. Jesus spoke with grace on his lips. We read in Luke 4.22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That was certainly early on in his ministry. And then when they realized he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted, then they killed him. But for now, they liked that he had gracious words. May our presence and our speech dispense grace to every contact. I have a hobby horse about this. But you know one simple way that you can express grace? When you go out to eat today and that waiter or waitress gets the money for their ticket, don't leave a track with no tip. That's what a schmuck does, all right? Don't do that. Leave a generous tip. Now, this is, I'm not condemning you guys, but in general, People that I talk to who work in restaurants, you know what day they hate working? Sundays. And you know why? It's because Christians are so cheap. (laughs) That should not be. We, of all people, should be generous. But the food stunk. But, you know, she didn't look at me right. Or be gracious. You know what grace is? It's giving to people what they don't deserve. Be generous. You should leave at the minimum 15, 20%. Be generous. Don't let them see you pray and then you stiff them. What is that? That's just another reason for them to say, those Christians. I'll leave it at that. That was my little soapbox. Now I'm off. All right? Let your speech always be gracious. The rules of St. Benedict, written by St. Benedict of Nursia 1,500 years ago, had instructions for very specific roles that they were to have within the monastery. For instance, there was a porter in charge of answering the door. And the porter's job was to open the door to the monastery when someone knocks. You might think, what? how difficult is that? But this is what, uh, how they looked at it. One contemporary uh, Benedictine author said this, the way we answer doors is the way we deal with the world. The way we greet somebody is the way we deal with the world. So the porter was given very specific instructions. He was, to, he was to sleep next to the entrance, and when he heard somebody, he was to communicate a blessing, to welcome them. And it was said, with all the gentleness that comes from reverence of God, with the warmth of love, thanks be to God. And they blessed them. And then the porter was to make sure that the other monks knew of the presence of their visitor, and the other monks were to come and greet the person and share hospitality. I love that. In contrast, the 20th century writer Dorothy Parker used to answer her telephone with this greeting. What fresh hell is this? (laughs) Well, hello to you too. What fresh hell is this? 
So listen, how we respond to somebody at our door, the first contact with somebody, uh, doing uh, business with somebody, somebody who comes into the church, is it, what fresh hell is this? Or is it, thanks be to God. Let your speech be gracious. Let your speech be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, salt does a lot of things, but let's just hone in on one thing for this particular passage. Salt adds flavor. It keeps you coming back for more. It's a way of saying that our speech is pleasant and interesting. Now, consider this passage in Colossians with 1 Peter chapter 3 that says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There, Peter puts the emphasis on the content of our speech, but here in Colossians, the emphasis is on how we ought to answer. It's the tone, it's the manner, it's the style of relating. In other words, it's to be appealing. It's to be kind and constructive. One could even provide criticism in a tough situation, but do it in a way that is constructive. Do it in a way to where we're showing respect. Do it in a way in which we're on this together as a team. You know, if you were to drop this into the religious world, we realize that one of the problems with the religious world is that much of our speech is with, we feel like we have to have such great certainty about everything, there's little room for error, little room for humility that we could be wrong about some things, and there's also little sense of proportion or weight in the religious world when we speak. In other words, you know, the style of worship or the color of the walls is met with the same bravado as the virgin birth. And people get very defensive and parochial when it comes to religious subjects. Instead of dignified dialogue, it's like a partisan ideologue. You know, people fight about, you know, well, I'm Reformed, well, I'm Pentecostal, and here's blah, 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 or some other group. And I'm not dogging those two groups. It could be anything. But all that kind of conversation where it's, it's so parochial and that's our, you know, it's like that's our mission, I call it institutionalized flesh or arrogance. It's prideful. And what Paul is advocating is, is a kind of open hand, open arm, cultivating pleasant and wise conversation. We don't have an agenda of trying to always snag somebody for our group, but it Here's, here's one simple rule. Make the other person the center of the conversation. The purpose that we're having these conversations you know, is not so I can get you on my side, win you to my club, get my agenda. Make the other person the center of the conversation. Ask questions about them. Listen, people are not repositories that we put the gospel message into. 
Our job is to love each and every person we come in contact with. And in that, in that natural flow of relating, you know what happens? The gospel is manifested. And it's the most natural thing to talk about Christ as they view our life, as we love them. Becky Pippert, whose husband served as UPI bureau chief in the Middle East, wrote this. She said, recently at a party, I was introduced by a very staid diplomat with this. This is Becky, and she really believes. Uh, She's really devout, and she's so interesting. (laughs) Uh, She says, Wes and I have laughed many times over how people have introduced us here with great enthusiasm, fascination, and respect. This comes out of the context of our efforts to generally get to know these people and their interest. We go to concerts together, see films together, and out of scores of conversations, our Christian beliefs have emerged. We don't do this as a gimmick to slip in the gospel. We do it because we are generally interested in relating to non-believers and their worldviews. The former company I used to work for, the man who owned the company, who I had a casual relationship with, but he was the, the, the owner of it all, he now owns a NASCAR team. And I saw him interviewed the other day, and he was talking about, uh, you know, how he works together as a team. And the lady just asked him, so tell me what principles you use as you try to put together this team. You know what he said? He goes, well, you know, you ask. I, I try to use the principles of Jesus. <laughs> and, and respecting people and, and loving people and, and working hard. It was just, it, was, it wasn't forced. She asked him. He gave an honest answer. And, you know, it just, and she like was like, whoa, but it was, uh, it was just part of daily doing business. I like what Rebecca said. We do it because we're generally interested in relating non-believers and their worldviews. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Answer each person. Each person has a need. You make them the center of the conversation. You minister to them. That's what you're going to do. You're going to love them well. That's what we're called to do. And so I love this, that Paul is addressing the the aspect of our spiritual connection with God, but also just very practically how we're to relate to outsiders. And my dear friends, what God is, I think, calling us to do is to be the kind of believers to where, you know, when people come in contact with us as Christians, it's not like we have two heads. We make them feel comfortable. We don't have to force our convictions on them or, you know, oh, you drink, oh, oh, you smoke, oh, well, I don't. Okay, you put away that kind of stuff. Your job is to love well those that we are in contact with and leave it at that, right? And, 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 as, you, and as you do that, not loving them as a project, but just because you genuinely care, watch what God does with that. Let's pray.